Spring break is over, and lawmakers will return to Springfield next week for the final month of the legislative session. We'll discuss the final stretch on this episode of Capital Cast. Hello and welcome to Capital Cast. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and today I'm joined by our reporting team, Peter Hancock, Hannah Meisel, Andrew Adams, and Nika Schoonover. We're here to discuss the state of state government with about a month left to go before the legislature's May 19th adjournment. The biggest unfinished business is the state operating budget, an expected $50 billion spending plan for the fiscal year that begins July 1st. While Governor Pritzker has floated the idea of unspecified tax cuts in recent weeks, the state's Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability recently published a report showing that state spending is expected to outpace revenues over the next three years. The three-year estimate by COGFA projected that by fiscal year 2026, the state could have an operating deficit between $500 million in the most austere scenario and $9.1 billion if spending continues to grow at its five-year pace. Essentially, the report predicted that after a three-year stretch of surpluses in the state budget, including for the current fiscal year, things are expected to tighten as the effect of federal stimulus on the national economy wears off. Still, COGFA is predicting a budget surplus in the hundreds of millions of dollars for the current fiscal year that ends June 30th, so the state is expected to have some budgeting flexibility in the next month. But COGFA has also noted the size of that surplus could drastically fluctuate either way depending on revenue returns in April, when Illinoisans file their taxes. That revenue update is expected in early May, so we'll be watching as that plays out. My colleague Andrew Adams made a graphic for that story I wrote on the COGFA report, which you can find at capitalnewsillinois.com. He's also recently reported on the state of higher education funding, which was effectively halved over the past 20 years, according to a new report. Andrew, welcome. And what can you tell me about the report from the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability? For sure. The the CTBA report essentially took a look at how the state has been funding higher education over the past 20 years. One of the most interesting things from that report that I found was the fact that as the state has invested fewer dollars or fewer dollars adjusted for inflation into higher education, universities have had to make up the difference to operate you know, throughout the years. And they've done that by increasing tuition, which is more than doubled over you know, the 20 years we're looking at here. So as tuition increases, what does that mean, especially for the lowest income families in Illinois? The lowest income families you know, already face barriers to higher education, but these increases in tuition have put us in a place where a public school education is still out of reach for a lot of people at, in the lower income brackets. You know, for example, a family who makes, you know, in the bottom quintile, the bottom one-fifth of income in the state, when compared to the average cost of a four-year public university, uh, that tuition, those fees represent 101% of that household's income. Okay. So uh, in the lead in here, I kind of noted that we've gone through a couple year stretch of some pretty strong financial revenue performance. But um, and, and in that time, the state's investment in higher education has actually increased. Um, so even despite that, uh, the report found that MAP grants, uh, monetary award 
program grants aren't going as far as they once did 10 or 20 years ago. So uh, are are the MAP grant increases sufficient or what did the report say about MAP grants? Sure. So MAP grants, you know, are these grants from the state to low-income students to help pay for tuition and fees. And, you know, over the past 20 years, the amount of MAP grants uh, or the amount that a MAP grant can cover in terms of a proportion of the total cost of attending a public school um, has decreased significantly. Part of that is due to the fact that, you know, 20 years ago, the average MAP grant was, you know, somewhere in the 2000s, $2,600, $2,700. And, you know, in the past year or two, they've been 30 or $3,200 or, you know, $3,100, which when compared to the average tuition right now is, you know, maybe one, one fifth of the total tuition. Right. And that's because, uh, as the report noted, universities have had to rely so much on tuition as the state's investment has sort of decreased over that span. Right. So there's a commission within the state looking at funding uh, universities and how that works. Uh, how long has that commission been on it and when do we expect their report? And what did you learn about it recently? For sure. The, the, the General Assembly in 2021 created the Commission on Equitable Public University Funding. And basically, uh, this commission has been charged with thinking of a new way of funding universities to address some of these inequities, to uh, more appropriately and more reliably fund universities over the span of several years. That commission is expected to finish its work and make its recommendations to the General Assembly this summer. I spoke with some of the people involved in the commission, and they told me that you know, what it's likely going to look like is a funding formula, something similar to how we fund K-12 education. Interestingly, you know, to the folks I spoke to, they're not aware of any state that funds higher education using a formula like this. So this is going to be a very interesting report to watch for. Right. And so you've also been covering a handful of strikes at uh, state universities, Um What's the interplay here between what we've seen with funding and and why these university faculties are going on strike? You know, I've spoken to folks involved at, you know, some of the strikes around the state. Currently, faculty at Governor State University and Chicago State University are on strike. Eastern Illinois University faculty were on strike, but they suspended it late last night, although they haven't reached a final agreement. And late Wednesday night, faculty at Northeastern Illinois University uh, authorized a strike. And the everyone I'm speaking to who are involved in these strikes, each negotiation is unique and each each faculty is you know fighting for better pay, m- more manageable workload. But the underlying current of all of it is that these universities uh, simply don't have the money they used to. They have all been saying that you know but the budgets are tighter. we have to do more with less. Uh, there are long-term enrollment, shifts where universities are seeing lower enrollment, particularly some of the smaller state universities. And since these universities are relying so much on tuition now to make up their operating revenue, that's having some real impacts on how many staff they can hire, what they can pay that those staff. So I think it was the president of the Illinois Federation of Teachers who said that 
these strikes are what happens when you have 20 years of disinvestment from higher education. You can view Andrew's report on that at capitalnewsillinois.com. And there's a couple of neat interactive graphics that you can look at too, to really show the trends and how public funding for universities has changed over that span. So before we get into a number of bills moving through the General Assembly, I'd like to switch gears to another major state government storyline that's happening in the courtroom. My colleague Hannah Meisel has been covering the ComEd 4 trial in Chicago, where four of the utilities' ex-officials stand accused of trying to bribe former House Speaker Michael Madigan with jobs for his allies in exchange for favorable legislation. Hannah's been doing an excellent job covering that, uh, especially with the developments this week. Uh, Hannah, one of the big developments was that one of the defendants took the witness stand. Uh, who is Anne Pramajore, and what did she have to say in her defense Thursday? That's right. Anne Pramajore was the former CEO of ComEd uh, before she moved on uh, to Exelon, ComEd's parent company, for the tail end of her career before her you know, sudden retirement in October 2019, was several months after the criminal investigation at ComEd became public. Anne Pramajore, uh, you know, she's lived a very interesting life. She's from Ohio. She went to college and was a theater major. And, um, you know, before she came to Chicago and went to DePaul Law School, she had been a merchandise buyer for department stores. Then after law school, she became an antitrust lawyer. And after several years of that, she was recruited to come work at ComEd in the early, uh, in the late 1990s. And from there, she uh, just grew into the company and uh, at some point was identified as someone you know, whose talent wanted to be developed. And uh, she eventually began being vetted for, you know, higher and higher positions within the company. And Pramajore is, as you said, she and the uh, three former lobbyists for ComEd are accused of having orchestrated this years-long bribery scheme, specifically between 2011 and 2019. Uh, And that was, you know, allegedly targeted at Speaker Madigan in order for him to kind of give ComEd an easier time getting legislation through Springfield. Notoriously uh, difficult for utilities. Madigan himself, uh, it's been said many times during this trial, was not a fan of utilities. And so Pramajori, uh, she, uh, we don't know yet, but it's looking like she might be the only of the four defendants to take the witness stand. And on Thursday, she only took the witness stand for the last 50 minutes of trial that day. Uh, trial resumes on Monday, but we couldn't get into a whole ton of the weeds of the case quite yet. But her attorney, Scott Lassar, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Illinois, you know, he made sure to let Anne have the opportunity to say that, no, you know, she absolutely did not intend for Madigan to uh, be bribed. In fact, you know, she didn't think it was possible because, like I said, Madigan was such, uh, you know, skeptic of utilities. Um, and so Monday uh, promises to be probably an all day affair for Anne on the witness stand, uh, questioned by her own attorneys. And then, you know, this is a rare and risky move for a defendant to take the witness stand uh, in a criminal trial, but because she will face very grueling, uh, difficult uh, cross-examination from prosecutors, um, I believe it was revealed for the first time on Thursday morning before uh, the jury came in and trial began it uh, in earnest, 
that Promajori had sat for a what's called a proffer session in September of 2019, which is kind of the initial exploration of you know becoming a cooperating witness. But clearly that did not actually happen. And anything that she said in that proffer session could, you know, if, if she doesn't testify exactly how she said what, you know, the turn of events in that proffer session, that could be used to impeach her on the stand. Yeah. And the defense sort of has been that this isn't really much more than just legal above board lobbying and relationship maintenance, uh, even though maybe some Madigan uh, allies receive contracts or subcontracts through lobbyists um, to to work on behalf of ComEd. You know, the government is saying that they have not worked for their monthly stipends. So what are prosecutors trying to get the jury to believe about those contracts in, in question? So the contracts are, you know, one of four legs that the prosecution has to, you know, kind of stand their case on. Um, the other is being summer internships where allegedly uh, college students from the 13th Ward, which is uh, Madigan's power base on Chicago Southwest Side, got preferential treatment. Um, a law firm contract for a Reyes person law firm, uh, which is headed by Victor Reyes, a longtime Madigan ally and fundraiser. And, you know, these these contracts are they've been a, a big deal in this trial. Um Especially because, you know, I, I feel like it, it's easy for the jury to understand the unfairness of someone not working and still getting a four to five thousand uh, dollar paycheck each month. So this week, uh, the final, well, the second to last uh, witness uh, from the government was Ed Moody, who was a longtime 13th Ward precinct captain. He was on the stand most of the day Tuesday. And he testified how he and his twin brother, uh, Fred Moody, uh, became so successful at walking districts uh, for Madigan. This is unpaid work over a series of you know decades and how, you know, he went to Madigan and asked to be connected to a contract uh, so he could earn you know more income. And the speaker you know allegedly made it clear that he controlled this contract. And if he stopped walking districts for Madigan, he could make the contract go away. So Moody was the uh, only of the uh, four alleged no-work subcontractors to appear in the trial, although we've heard plenty about the other three in emails and, uh, you know, days and days of testimony. So is there anything else uh, we should be watching for as we await your coverage uh, in the further days of the trial? Well, so after the prosecution rostered their case uh, this week and uh, Anne Promajori, the defense uh, started, you know, this should last another few days. And then the other three defendants uh, will each have their turn uh, to present their cases, each with their own witnesses and, you know, specific defense exhibits for them. And Mike McLean, who is a longtime contract lobbyist for ComEd, of course, a uh, very close confidant and friend of Speaker Madigan's, he's going to go last. And then we've got closing arguments. And, you know, this thing should be wrapped up within the next couple, three weeks. And then I'll be back in Springfield for the end of session. We await your return anxiously. Uh, <laughs> so... Shifting gears uh, from Chicago back to Springfield, uh, there have been about 700 bills have moved through at least one chamber of the General Assembly thus far. Our team has covered a lot of those. 
I'll go to Peter Hancock, who's been covering some education bills this week. One of them revolves around the EdTPA test. Uh, what is that? And what can you tell us about how the bill uh, changes the state's reliance on it? Yeah, uh, the EdTPA is one of the exams you have to take to get licensed as a teacher. And unlike other tests where those uh, standardized tests where you fill out multiple choice uh, questions uh, by using a number two pencil and darkening a circle, uh, this is actually a performance-based test. You have to submit a portfolio that gets reviewed of examples of your work, uh, lessons, lesson plans that you've used in the classroom, uh, samples of your students' work. And originally, it even called for submitting, uh, I think, three videos of yourself actually engaging uh, with the class. That raised some concerns, and now Illinois provides some alternatives around the videotaping. But it's a very intensive kind of exam, and there is some concern that it, it's so intensive that it actually uh, deters some people from even trying to become a teacher. It was developed at Stanford University and the people who promote it, they like to compare it to bar exam for lawyers or you know, a licensing exam for an architect. Uh, but the concern is that you get done taking those exams and you get licensed, you're making, you know, easily $60,000, $70,000 a year to start. Uh, teachers come out making about $40,000 a year. So there's some concern that it's a little too intensive, especially at a time when Illinois is facing a very severe teacher shortage. So am I right? This, this would extend a suspension that's sort of been in place through executive order uh, by Governor Pritzker? During the pandemic, Governor Pritzker put a hold on it uh, because, well, for one thing, it was just kind of impossible to meet the requirements of it when everybody was in lockdown. Uh, this would continue that uh, for another couple of years. And during the meantime, uh, the state would appoint a special task force that would review this exam and other kinds of licensing exams to see which one is really best for the state of Illinois. It had the support of a lot of education-based groups, including you know, the Superintendents Association, the Principals Association, Teachers Unions. Uh, the State Board of Education, which has in the past been very strongly defended the use of this test, uh, was neutral on it because it doesn't actually put an end to the test. It just continues a pause and they do a study of it. So at least for the next couple of years, prospective teachers, aspiring teachers uh, will not have to go through that to get their teacher's license. So and that one passed unanimously on the Senate. So now it heads to the House where it'll be further considered. Uh, but one of the other interesting bills you covered, um, I think, was especially interesting to me because I covered a uh, school board in McLean County and uh, DeWitt County during the budget impasse. And, you know, there were all these alarm bells as to the state funding not coming in um, as it was needed. And now... <clears throat> you've covered a bill where some people are concerned that that the state of some school districts are are too healthy they're saving too much money uh so what is this bill um that would limit school district cash reserves um this has been a concern uh, of course you've covered local school districts so have i uh that when their year-end financial reports come out people look at how much cash on hand that they're sitting on and you know, there are lots of reasons why districts would keep some amount of cash on hand. 
partly because their revenue comes in in kind of irregular cycles with property tax payments and with federal payments and, of course, you know, the state support coming through. But then, you know, there are uh, some districts that have more than 780 days, operating days worth of cash on hand. And, and the, the state calls for 180 days, right? Um, well, best practices, uh, you know, between 180 days, uh, bond rating agencies like Moody's would say maybe six months worth of you know, operating cash. Um, of course, you know, as you covered the uh, budget impasse, uh, I think a lot of districts are maybe still in shell shock over that and they hoard up money. But then taxpayers look at that and say, well, listen, you know, if you're sitting on all this cash, why are you still levying these taxes against me? Uh, can't we have a little bit of a tax break here? And so what this bill would do would say it, every year they have to submit a report kind of averaging out their operating, their annual operating expenses. And it says if you have more than two and a half times that, which would be two and a half years worth of operating expenses, then you need to submit a plan for how you're going to spend that down. Now, the plan may be we intend to spend it down because we're going to pay cash to add a new kindergarten room onto a building, or we want to pay cash to put a new security system uh, in the district. There are reasons why districts will build up large amounts of reserves. Uh, but this basically just says if you're going to build up huge reserves, you need to at least explain to people why you're doing it, and what you intend to do with it. There was a report that came out from the State Board of Education, uh, and we just got the numbers on this. There is one school district in McHenry County that has 1,004 days worth of operating expenses in uh, cash on hand. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you have Chicago Public Schools, which had a little less than three and a half days worth of operating expenses. Chicago has some unique financial pressures on it. But I think, you know, people would look at a district that has a thousand days worth of cash on hand. They might say, you know, what are you doing with that? And why can't you give taxpayers a little bit of a break here? Thank you for that, Peter. Now I'll bring in Nika Schoonover, who has recently reported on a pair of bills that would further loosen marijuana restrictions in Illinois. Uh, one of them would be aimed at probable cause for a traffic stop. Nika, welcome. And uh, can you go into detail about that bill? Hi. And yeah, absolutely. So this measure would make it so the smell of burnt or raw cannabis in any type of vehicle cannot be a sole probable cause to have that person's vehicle searched. Yeah, that one is pretty straightforward, but there are some exceptions, are there not? Yes. So there are exceptions for if you are under the age of 21, you are still able to have your vehicle searched just solely based on that smell. And that's actually that exception that was recently added in is actually why the ACLU of Illinois switched their stance on the bill from being in support of it to being neutral because they didn't like that the age exemption set up to have younger people be targeted more based on the possibility of there being the smell of weed in their car. So that measure passed 33 to 20, uh, and that'll go to the House for further consideration. And then another bill you covered pertains to the use of cannabis and alcohol while on probation. Um, how does that change existing law? Yeah, so 
basically this measure would bar courts from preventing individuals from using substances such as cannabis or alcohol in most instances if they're on probation, conditional discharge, or supervision. But it does have several exemptions as well, including if the person is sentenced to a crime that involved the consumption of that substance, if they are under the age of 21, or if they are participating in problem-solving court. So um, if they're going through the system of courts to address mental health or substance abuse problems. Okay. And that measure was a little bit contentious as well, uh, mm-hmm. past 34 to 21, and, and, and it heads to the House as well. So before we go, I'll go back to Andrew Adams, who also had a recent report about wind farms on Lake Michigan. Uh, Andrew, you've been sort of taking on the energy beat which is always a major topic of conversation, especially recently in the General Assembly. What have you heard from the sponsors of the Lake Michigan Wind Farm Project? Well, first, you're absolutely right. It is a major topic of conversation, particularly as the state is trying to move to you know, carbon neutral energy generation in the next 20 or 25 years. There is a bill going through the General Assembly right now that would create an application structure and a funding structure for an offshore wind project on Lake Michigan. So that's going to be a relatively small project, right? Not necessarily a major contributor to the energy mix in Chicago area? Exactly. The project is, you know, planned to be at at a minimum 150 megawatts, which is, you know, something like one-tenth or lower of the scale of, for example, a traditional nuclear power plant. But the proponents of this legislation and this project say that this is a pilot, right? They want to have this be the first step in longer term investment in offshore wind on the lake. And what are the concerns about it um, from maybe the environmental community or are they backing it or why are people kind of worried about this project? Uh, project has divided some in the you know conservation community and in the environmental community, I think. There are kind of three major concerns with the project. Uh, The first is that of cost. The Environmental Law and Policy Center had an analysis of this to put a number on what it would cost. Uh, Basically, they found it would increase the amount that ratepayers would have to pay by $680 million over the life of the project. The other two concerns are that it would privatize the lake, which is traditionally held you know, as a, as a public piece of the environment. And the final concern is about wildlife. There are bird conservation groups and you know, chapters of the Audubon Society on both sides of this issue. You know, a recent report from a national laboratory that focuses on environmental energy said that the impacts of offshore wind on the Great Lakes on bird populations, which use that region as a migration corridor, are not fully understood. Right. And then there are lawmakers from the south side of Chicago, where is the tentative site for such a project that that don't want it. But then there are some who do, um, who think it will bring community benefits uh, and other equity measures uh, to the area. Quickly, can you tell us um, maybe what those equity measures are? Absolutely. The legislation would require that anyone who wants to develop you know, this project has to have a community benefits agreement with you know, the area that it's based in. 
And what that means is that they would have to essentially have a contract spelling out exactly how much they would invest in local businesses, how many jobs they would have open for local workers. Uh, And the proponents of this legislation say that it makes the project very unique and that it will bring significant jobs to where it's located. And while there isn't a location specified right now, the preferred spot for it is the Port of Illinois uh, on the mouth of the Calumet River on Chicago's far south side, basically next to the Indiana border. And like you mentioned, the the representative who represents that area in the House actually voted against the bill and said that his district didn't want this. Now that bill passed the House and goes to the Senate for further consideration. So that's going to do it for this episode of Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. As always, thank you for listening.